Hello everybody, I'm Michael Millerman and this is Millerman Talks episode 14, Ronald Beener and Alexander Dugan. Ronald Beener is a political theorist at the University of Toronto. He's author of the paper, Who's Alexander Dugan? 2015 paper posted to the website, Crooked Timber. And he's the author of a recent book on um, dangerous minds, Heidegger, Nietzsche, and the Return of the Far Right, which includes a discussion of Dugan and is informed by a concern about the impact of right-wing philosophical ideas on political movements in the age of Trump. He also writes about Bannon and he has other concerns about um, thinkers of that sort, but Dugan has been a particular topic of his theoretical and uh, practical ire recently. He calls Dugan one of the most dangerous ideologues on the planet. And I want to engage with his criticisms of Dugan, his analysis of Dugan, because he's one of very few political theorists, people whose uh, professional calling it is to think about um, to think about ideas, think about big visions of political and philosophical life and, and what they mean for us. Uh, he's one of a few people of that kind working. Um, in part on Alexander Dugan. A lot of the other people who write about Dugan focus on foreign policy or geopolitics, um, but not too many people are equipped to deal with the ideas themselves. Beener is someone who is, um, by virtue of his professional position as a political theorist and his interest in political philosophy, um, in a position to engage with Dugan. And since he's written about his ideas, He's a good uh, interlocutor for this purpose. So here's Alexander Dugan. Um, why Dugan? Like, why is Beener writing about him? Why am I making videos about him? What's his relevance here? So Alexander Dugan is an influential political theorist, ideologue, and activist. Um, he's mentioned by Steve Bannon, by Brazil's new foreign minister, uh, and by other people who are in international politics, building alliances, populist alliances, left-right alliances, anti-liberal alliances, and so on. So his name comes up um, often in discussions that give the impression that he's the main theorist of contemporary right-wing anti-liberalism. He's kind of seen as a um, theoretical mastermind of a lot of uh, a lot of movements across Europe, sometimes in North America, and certainly in Russia and surrounding areas. There's a sort of discover the networks game of his associations. So you can find pictures of him with David Duke and see him appearing on the Alex Jones show, see him being interviewed with Francis Fukuyama. Um, sometimes he's standing next to a political actor in one country, and sometimes he's um, lecturing in a university in another. So he's for people who are, let's say, conspiracy theorists, both in the absurd and in the plausible sense, oftentimes there's an effort to connect the dots among a variety of players, Richard Spencer, Stephen Miller, and you can find Dugan in those accounts, um, usually in some place of prominence. He's a prolific author whose books started to become available in English in 2012. And uh, as you'll see in a second, Disclosure, I'm the translator of some of those works. Uh, and Dugan is the creator of something called the Fourth Political Theory, um, a book 
a series of books in a way and an idea that's gained a prominence in the last um, six or so years. So here, here am I um, on a Canadian television channel called TVO a few years ago being interviewed about my work on Alexander Dugan. So we have Beener, political theorist at the University of Toronto on one hand. You have Alexander Dugan, this political theorist and ideologue, creator of the fourth political theory on the other. And I'm in a position to discuss Beener's view of Dugan because of the following. I did my PhD in political science with a focus on political theory at the University of Toronto, where Beener is a, a faculty member. And in fact, he was my dissertation supervisor before resigning over the case of Dugan, over our disagreements about Dugan, um, after which point he wrote his article and his book, in a way, in response to the disagreements that, uh, that we had. I think it's fair to say that I'm Dugan's leading English translator, and I'll provide a link where you can see the list of my translations um, below. I think because I take him seriously as a political philosopher, I am among the world's leading experts on his political philosophy. There are people who work on his geopolitics. There are people who work on his influence uh, in Russian networks and on various aspects of his bi biography. Um, but not a lot of people have had the patience and the wherewithal to work through his theoretical and philosophical works, um, whereas I've had the good fortune or misfortune, depending on how you see it, of doing just that. I was interviewed about Dugan, as I said, on Canadian television in 2014. You can see that video also called Who is Alexander Dugan? Um, if you look it up on YouTube. I wrote about him in my dissertation, which was a study of various responses to Heidegger in the domain of political theory. And fundamentally, unlike Beener, and unlike many of Dugan's critics, uh, some serious, some not so serious, I regard him as more than a mere ideologue, more than a mere activist. So that's why I think I'm equipped to comment on Beener's analysis of, uh, of Dugan in his essay, Who's Alexander Dugan? Beener's basic claims are as follows. Dugan's theoretical works, he says, are a rhetorical cloak. They have no independent theoretical significance. They're a smokescreen. They mask his political ambitions, but they are philosophically and theoretically um, bereft of their own significance. Uh, national Bolshevism, Eurasianism, and the fourth political theory, Beener says, all different names that Dugan has used for his ideology, basically all amount to the same thing. There's, so there's no development or there's no distinction. They're all the same thing. They are all arguing in favor of an anti-liberal alliance, a fusion of totalitarian ideologies. So what is the fourth political theory? What is Eurasianism? What is National Bolshevism? It's about a fusion of Nazism and Bolshevism, of fascism and communism, of the left and of the right, of all of the enemies of liberalism in an anti-liberal alliance. Beener argues that Dugan's position owes less to political or philosophical factors than it does to spiritual, theological, or pseudo-theological commitments. And he says that Dugan bathes in the swampy waters of mystical esotericism and occultism. Um, to give you a sense of how he views Dugan um, beyond those points, 
So he argues that the eight-pointed star of Eurasianism, if you look up Eurasianism, you'll see a black flag with an eight-pointed star on it, symbol of chaos. Biener writes that that uh, chaos symbol is a no less malevolent version of the swastika. That Dugan is published by Arctos, a press that is incontrovertibly Aryanist and white supremacist. Dugan, he says, is willing to reach out to allies in the gutter, has a commitment to a Nazified Russia, positively yearns for the end of the world, and practices ecumenical jihadism with the slogan, jihadists of all civilizations unite. Like, best friends with the Unibomber and just wants a big party of Nazi-loving jihadists to tear the whole thing down. In Duganism, he writes, evil is staring us right in the face. Accordingly, he sees Dugan as a pseudo-intellectual kook and crank, um, but not as a clown only, because however much he may look to liberals as a kind of intellectual clown, he's precisely the sort of thuggish enemy of liberalism that we must most fear. Uh, Biener writes that in this time, we're learning anew that fascism, including its theocratic versions, so fundamentalism, Islamic fundamentalism and other uh, theocratic fascisms, as he sees it, with its brown uniforms and black flags, has a romance that we liberals underestimate at our peril. So liberals must take Dugan seriously, even though he seems like an intellectual clown, because he's dangerous and he unites dangerous people around him against liberalism in a, room, in a vision that some people find still appealing, seductive. I would say that Beaner also makes, as you maybe can see already, some guilt by association claims, for example, that Dugan is published by Arctos, so they're Aryan white supremacist press. Therefore, Dugan supports Aryan white supremacist ideas. Um, Biener denies that he's making a guilt by association claim, but here's what he writes about that. Is this a kind of guilt by association? No. Dugan is so eclectic and ecumenical in his extremism that we need to be aware of those with whom he associates in order to pierce through the bewildering variety of his sources and references. Dugan himself decides which toxic intellectuals, uh, sorry, which toxic intellectual sources to draw upon for his own ideological activities. And these are the vile comrades with whom he chooses to collaborate. Choosing to align yourself with Julius Evola, one of Dugan's arch fascist intellectual heroes, and Arctos Media, is decidedly a mode of self disclosure and is probably our most reliable point of access to what Dugan is really about. So our most reliable point of access to what Dugan is really about for Beaner is not his books, which you might think is a important point of access for what a thinker or what a political ideologue even or activist is all about, but rather the most reliable point of access for Beaner is the associates of Dugan, the vile comrades with whom he chooses to collaborate. Now, that's a brief but accurate 
summary of the main claims against Dugan in Biener's article, Who's Alexander Dugan? Um, to which I would now like to respond. So the first, if you remember, is that Dugan's theoretical writings are a rhetorical cloak for his um, for his love of totalitarianism and for his desire to have a totalitarian anti-liberal front. Um, to which I respond as follows. The relationship between philosophical ideas and their political presentation or the rhetoric that cloaks them is a legitimate theme in political theory. So even if we begin with Plato or Aristotle, what a philosopher thinks and how a philosopher speaks in public and speaks to different political audiences is a fundamental age-old, long-established theme in the history of political theory. So it's legitimate to wonder about the relationship between philosophy and rhetoric in Dugan's writings. But if we think that a theorist's statements are a rhetorical cloak for purely political positions, as Biener argues, we must demonstrate that claim on the basis of a thorough analysis of the theoretical statements. So maybe that's plausible in general that a theorist's statements can be a cloak for their political positions, but that is the type of claim that requires demonstration. Biener has not even attempted the task of demonstration and can't do so since he hasn't studied Dugan's philosophical writings, nor has he consulted with people who do know those writings. So his claim is unfounded. And in fact, it's not plausible on the basis uh, of a more comprehensive study of Dugan's philosophical writings. So that's my first response. Rhetorical cloak. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to prove it, and Biener has done very little besides making the assertion. Second, um, does Dugan represent a fusion of totalitarian ideologies? Well, I say yes and no. So yes, he has written before that an, that an anti-liberal front to be successful must be a big tent, so to speak. Um, in other words, it must include within itself the various enemies of liberalism. And in that sense, uh, it's not quite a fusion, but it's a combination, a political combination of anti-liberal elements for the political and ideological and geopolitical war against liberalism. Um, but I hasten to add that even at that level for Dugan, not everyone remains in the tent after the defeat of liberalism. So he writes somewhere, for example, that you may need to make temporary alliances with certain radical factions who themselves um, will have to be excluded from the from the more uh, authentic and more robust version of the political theory afterward at the next stage. So yes, I acknowledge that there's an element of um, uniting anti-liberal elements in the political war against liberalism. But I said yes and no. So no, his theoretical position is a consistent and thorough rejection of totalitarianism. Um, he does think that liberalism itself is totalitarian and it's totalitarian in ways his argument for that is um, not completely implausible. The totalitarian character of contemporary liberalism is something that even many moderate conservatives, uh, not to mention moderate 
leftists are beginning to recognize and to oppose. But the more fundamental point is this, that his rejection of liberalism, communism, and fascism, what he calls the three political theories, is a rejection of modernity. Modernity understood as a specific moment in the development of Western philosophy. And he rejects that development in the history of Western philosophy, called modernity, in the name of different models of what it is to be human, different models of man, that are, to use a technical phrase, um, apophatic, or that are aporetic, or open. They're not closed, total systems. You see, philosophically, totalitarianism is a closed system. But Dugan's view, philosophically, of his own political theory and his view of what it is to be human, they're not closed models. They're not closed models. They're open models. And he writes about that, for example, in the book In Search of the Dark Logos, not to mention other places. Um, but Beener doesn't read the Russian, and he doesn't consult with people who do read the Russian. He's unaware of the philosophical articulation of Dugan's positions, and therefore he throws around the word totalitarian as equivalent to bad. So fusion of totalitarian ideologies means everything bad. Dugan supports everything bad. But in fact, Dugan is opposed to totalitarian political philosophy. That's easily demonstrable on the basis of the primary sources, his books. Secondly, if you remember, Beener claimed that it's not even clear that Dugan's political theory is uh, political or philosophical. It bathes in the swampy waters of mystical occultism and is pseudo-theological. Well, his position presupposes an unspecified notion of philosophy and divinity or study of divinity, theology, and their relationship. So before you say something is not philosophical, but pseudo-theological, you have to first have a well-defined sense of what philosophy is, what theology is, and what the relationship between the two of them is. Which is completely lacking in Beener's analysis. And I won't say it's above his pay grade, but it's lacking in his analysis. Um, Beener's article also presupposes a negative evaluation of the phenomenon of mysticism and of occultism. So why does he call mystical theology and occultism swampy? Why is it necessarily swampy? He doesn't understand it. It's a little bit dark. It has some elements of concealment in it. Not everything is um, clear to the clear to the eye, clear to his eye, the whole mystical and occult tradition in its richness and depth, he just dismisses here as unphilosophical and as uh, illegitimate with no supporting argumentation and with no serious engagement with the alternate view. Um, and in a recurring theme, his comments on those points show that he completely lacks familiarity with Dugan's theoretical writings on these matters because Dugan has addressed, let's say, the philosophical significance of mysticism and the mystical significance of philosophy. 
Let me give you an example, okay? An example of what it would mean to think through in slightly more detail the relationship in Dugan's thought between philosophy and theology. Dugan has written before that the body, soul, and spirit of the fourth political theory as a system of knowledge are geopolitics, the body, ethnosociology, the soul, and theology corresponding to the spirit. So we already have theology in a structure here, having a role to play in the fourth political theory. True. But he also said that Heidegger is the deepest foundation of the fourth political theory. Heidegger, the philosopher. So the relationship between theology, which is spirit in this model, and Heidegger, who's the philosopher par excellence in a way for Dugan, uh, a legitimate theme for political philosophy and political theory, the relationship between theology and Heidegger, could be a good place to start thinking about this question for Dugan, the relationship between mysticism, occultism, philosophy, what he calls this, as I said earlier, the dark logos. There's a rich theme here that is totally fair play and fair ground for people engaged in the study of political theory and political philosophy. And Beener just totally ignores it and totally misinterprets it, pays no attention to the relevant literature, and sets the question up completely wrongly and completely unthinkingly, as a result, inadequately. So here's another example. How would you approach this question? Is Dugan a philo- is, is his political theory philosophical or is it theological or pseudo-theological or swampy mysticism? Well, let's see. If we actually did what scholars are supposed to do and engage with the primary source material, that means his books, his lectures, interviews, videos, and so on, uh, it would be very easy to discover the relevance for Dugan of the scholar Henri Corbin, a scholar of Iranian um, and Islamic mysticism. Dugan refers to him often and uh, is clearly influenced by his studies. Well, for Corbin, the distinction between philosophy and theology is not at all very clear-cut. And you can see uh, his view on that in the essay called A Theory of Visionary Knowledge in the book The Voyage and the Messenger, for example. So now we're plugging Dugan into this very rich tradition of mystical Iranian uh, visionary philosophy, which somehow combines the philosophical and the theological. Beiner is unequipped to deal with those types of questions, not only because of the professional training, but because this a priori hysteria around Dugan's anti-liberalism makes it impossible at the outset to situate him in those traditions that would allow us to make better sense of his fundamental positions and the basic trajectories of his thought and the movements of his soul. For Beiner and for others like him, then, the relationship between philosophy and mystical theology is an unquestioned answer. They just treat it as dogma rather than as a question, and that limits the value of the analysis. Okay, another claim. Dugan has allies in the gutter. Let's give a little bit of credit where it's due. Um, I agree. He doesn't only sit at his desk and solve all the world's problems like some people do from the comfort of their own homes without ever having to meet other people. Uh, Indeed, he meets with a broad range of people. Not all of them are likable. 
although that could be a matter of personal taste. Um, not all of them are serious from a philosophical and theoretical perspective, that's for sure. Um, not all of them are safe. Some of them probably pose legitimate um, political concern for a liberal patriot. And not all of them are liberals. Okay, you can grant all of that. He meets with some non-liberal, non-philosophical types. But many of the people he associates with are fine intellectuals. Of course, if you think that only a liberal can be a fine intellectual, then you'll see all of these people as belonging to the same gutter. But hopefully at least some of the viewers among you can uh, draw the distinction. Many of them are fine intellectuals indeed. And um, not all of the associates think the same way about everything. So it's reductionist to say he's got allies in the gutter. What does that mean? If one day he talks to a traditionalist of one tradition, another day to a traditionalist of another, on a third day he talks to a postmodern atheist or nihilist, and on a fourth day to somebody else, these are associations that should be analyzed each in their own way. Um, but another point is that Beener's characterizations of these um, of these collaborations with the Allies is not really reliable. It shows you a very strong liberal dogmatic bias. So, for example, he calls Evola an arch-fascist and writes that in choosing to align with him and with Arctos, a press that publishes many of Evola's translations, incidentally, uh, that that choice is decidedly a mode of self-disclosure. Do you remember? We learn more about Dugan from his reading Evola and publishing with Arctos than we would learn about him from reading his own books. Well, look, this idea of modes of self-disclosure, who you read, where you publish, who you talk to, what you do, modes of self-disclosure, and what modes of self-disclosure, and we can add self-concealment, are appropriate for a philosopher. Now, there's a, there's a topic worthy of a political theorist, um, but Beener doesn't, doesn't go into that topic at all. What is self-disclosure? What is self-concealment? And what's appropriate for a philosopher? Um, he leaves, you could say time and time again, he leaves the genuinely philosophically interesting questions off to the side. But more prosaically, it's too easy to dismiss thinkers like Evola by labeling them fascist, neo-fascist, arch-fascist. Can we keep going? Proto-fascist. Especially when, in these cases, the label spares one the intellectual effort of reading, thinking, and understanding. After all, Evola was a critic of fascism who criticized it from the right. We would have to do the whole work of seeing which parts of fascism he thought were good and why, which parts of fascism he thought were bad and why. That whole analysis takes time, effort, and energy that some liberal scholars spare themselves through the very convenient act of uh, labeling and dismissing, which of course brings them no closer to understanding. Okay, how about the guilt by association claim? So I do think, even though Beener has denied it, that guilt by association is clearly a part of his charge against Dugan because association is a form of self-disclosure. And if you're associating with low-life Nazi um, gutter ideologues, then you are a low-life Nazi gutter ideologue, case closed, no matter what you wrote, no matter how many books you've written. Incidentally, he used the same sort of argumentation against me 
in comments that he made in the National Post article, where he said that by choosing to have my translations published with Arctos, I am also supporting white supremacy and so on. Um, some, so again, to give credit where it's due, some of Dugan's tactical political contacts may be the gutter, so to speak, from the perspective of the mountaintop of scholarship, philosophy, and theory. I don't say that all of them are. I just say it's possible that some of them are. But at the level of theoretical contact, where we're reading authors, talking to thinkers, interviewing people, and trying to research and learn, nothing should be out of bounds. Nothing. To think, we must think broadly and deeply. We must think with the intention that nothing human is alien to us. It can't be that we only read the liberals and everybody else is non-human or subhuman or some sort of monster, totalitarian. That has its place in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, maybe, maybe not even there, okay, at some political level. But if we're thinking, if we're studying, researching, philosophizing, theorizing, then thought cannot just stay in a single lane. That's ideology, my friends. That's dogma. True thought transcends boundaries. Thinking will bring you into intimate inner contact. Intimate inner contact. Not like you're photographed standing next to David Duke shaking his hand or, or photographed next to Fukuyama or Alex Jones. You think that's association, that you were photographed standing next to somebody and shaking their hand. Association is when you invite thoughts into your heart and mind and weigh them. That's a much more intimate inner form of association that you can't even be photographed doing. And in that act of thinking, you'll be brought into contact with a broad political, ideological, theoretical, theological, philosophical spectrum. Just think about it. You'll have to read Christian thinkers of every stripe, Islamic, Jewish, mystical, rationalist, atheist, modern, medieval, postmodern. There's no guilt by association in the act of thinking. How can there be? When you associate with so broad a spectrum of human being. It's completely unphilosophical and untheoretical to demand that only politically and ideologically correct thinkers are read and studied. Only the liberals, only the commies, only the right wing. I'm sorry, my friends, there's more to thinking than that. And Beaner's charge against Dugan, you can't read Evola without becoming a fascist and so on. Well, what would he say about the fact that Dugan holds Deleuze in very high regard? Is that compatible? Can you be Deleuzian and an Evolaist, supporter of Evola, at one and the same time? Such questions can't arise for a liberal dogmatist at all. So guilt by association dismissals of a thinker. Of a thinker. Guilt by association dismissals of a thinker are lazy ways to avoid doing the work.
Think about it. Approach number one, he's published by Arctos, therefore he's a white supremacist. Well, that didn't take a lot of time. It took me about two seconds to say that. Approach number two, read 300 pages of his book on ethnosociology. Do what I did, translate it. Make it available for a broader range of readers and scholars. What's easier? Denunciation. What's more rewarding? What brings you closer to the truth? I think the actual study does. All right. Is Dugan dangerous? So, yes. Anti-liberal alliances do pose a threat to liberal alliances. That's the political aspect. And clearly, if, he's a, if we are liberal Democrats and he's an anti-liberal forming anti-liberal alliances that have some political significance, um, then clearly is dangerous from the point of view of uh, geopolitical realities like that. Um, and yes, there's also the fact that all philosophical thought puts the prevailing opinions of one's country or one's time uh, into question. So philosophical thought is dangerous for the city because it undermines some of its most cherished beliefs. And anti-liberal political activism is dangerous for liberals because they're at the receiving end of the, um, of the ire, you see? So there is a sense in which Dugan is dangerous. And, but the theme of Dangerous Minds, the title of Buner's book, the theme of Dangerous Minds includes those types of dangers, the danger of political, uh, dangerous political alliances, but it exceeds that topic. What is a dangerous mind? That doesn't just mean a mind that can tell you how to build a gun and point it at you and pull the trigger. That's not what he means when he talks about Heidegger and Nietzsche. Meaner, I mean. A the topic of a dangerous mind far exceeds the kind of danger that he warns about in his uh, paper. And it's appropriate for a political theorist and a defender of political philosophy like Beener to pay attention to the philosophical dimensions of the danger of thought. But unfortunately, he doesn't do that. So let me wrap this up with what I think is a key point. Beaner's basic claim. And when I say Beaner, it's not just about Ronald Beaner. It's about the view that he represents. The other people who treat not just Dugan, but Dugan, Heidegger, Nietzsche, Schmidt, Evola, Arctos, Millerman, and everybody else who thinks along, anywhere along these lines in the same way, they all fall into this criticism. They all fail when it comes to the relationship between religion, theology, and philosophy. They all rest on guilt by association claims instead of doing the work of analysis. So I say Beener, but we're talking about a broader phenomenon. Well, his basic claim can be summarized in the view that Dugan is a maniacal ideologue and not at all a philosopher. He wrote that on Twitter. Maniacal ideologue. But mania, madness of a certain sort, is proper to philosophy. Madness belongs to that yearning for wisdom, for truth, and for self-transcendence that belongs to philosophy. So it's not necessarily a problem for a philosopher to be maniacal or Dionysian. Beaner also does not 
question the relationship between philosophy and ideology. He has a view that, like pornography, you know it when you see it. But in fact, you have to have a clearer definition of the boundary between philosophy and ideology if you're going to accuse people of being gutter ideologues and not philosophers, especially when they've written good books on Heidegger and so on, as Dugan has done. I've interviewed Dugan before in print, and I asked him about the relationship in his works between philosophy and ideology. And he gave a thoughtful answer on the basis of Heideggerian philosophy, an answer that was better than Beener's stipulation of a distinction between philosophy and ideology that just basically puts things I don't like into the category ideology. In the essay, Who's Alexander Dugan? Beener says there are three Dugans, the philosophical Dugan, the ideology-mongering Dugan, and the witchcraft-dispensing Dugan. Okay? Philosophy, ideology, and witchcraft. But he reduces all three of them to either ideology or witchcraft. And if we accept that model for the sake of argument that Dugan has these three components or three levels, if we accept it for the sake of argument, the question ultimately is what is the meaning of the philosophical Dugan? What is the meaning of the philosophical Dugan? Or generally of philosophy's relationship to these other modes of self-disclosure and modes of self-concealment like ideology and witchcraft taken broadly. And in no way do we answer the philosophical question by saying that Dugan's philosophy is a rhetorical cloak for his ideology and his witchcraft dispensing. You see, so Beener is just nowhere close to making the case and nowhere close to even seeing the problem about the relationship between all of these elements, not only in Dugan, but in themselves. You see, because if we say Beener and we point beyond him to the broader phenomenon of liberal dogmatism, when we say Dugan, we have to point beyond him to the broader phenomenon of political philosophy of a certain sort. And the problems exceed uh, all three of us, Ronald Beener, Michael Millerman, and Alexander Dugan. They're much broader and more general, even if they happen to be embodied in us at the moment. It's completely fine for people who write about Dugan for Vox or Salon or some other, um, some other online newspaper or print uh, journal to know nothing about the relationship between philosophy and ideology, never to have heard of Henri Corbin, to have no clue about Sufi mysticism, to know nothing about Heidegger, and never to have tried to, you know, you don't even know there's a puzzle, you have no idea what the puzzle pieces are, and you've never made an attempt to fit them together. All can be forgiven when it comes to popular journalism and uh, your regular online activities. But it's not okay for a political theorist who writes books on political philosophy, like what is political philosophy, tries to define the very enterprise, this noble and sublime enterprise, um, not to have better answers and not to ask better questions than Beener has done in his study of Dugan. So, in sum, yes, I admit, Dugan is a complicated figure. He combines various roles in himself. It's not always easy to square. His uh, book on Heidegger, first, second, third, or fourth, was something that he may have written online. 
takes a little bit of effort and interest to do that. He combines various roles in himself, sometimes the philosopher, sometimes the activist, sometimes the propagandist, sometimes the ideologue, and who knows what else. But he's not a mere ideologue. He's not a crazy kook. He writes better books and gives better lectures than many academic political theorists. I tell you as someone who graduated uh, from the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, I've watched Dugan's lectures at Moscow State University. I've experienced many lectures at the University of Toronto. And I can tell you that his, uh, at, at times, compare favorably, to put it mildly. And the sad thing is that the books like In Search of the Dark Logos that are helpful in understanding his thought aren't available yet in English. I mean, I haven't translated everything yet. And the people who have potential to dig deep into these questions, like Biener, for example, felt too certain and their dogmatic convictions about Dugan um, to consult people who have, let's say, a better understanding of the primary source material. So the basic message is, wherever you find yourself, uh, you who are viewing this video, if you've heard of Dugan or haven't, if you love him or hate him, if you know something about him or you don't know something about him, um, a generally theoretical or philosophical analysis of a serious thinker can't ignore the actual work of studying, analyzing, and understanding the books, the materials, the speeches. Don't rely on Wikipedia. I mean, nothing against Wikipedia. Don't let that be your only source of information for who or what a thinker is. And we have to catch ourselves at every moment if we're limiting our if we're limiting our inquiry dogmatically that can be through liberal dogma liberal dogmatism which sees everything that's not liberal as a totalitarianism it can be a leftist dogmatism that sees everything that's not socialist as fascist or it can be a right-wing dogmatism but philosophical thought has to exceed those categories and one of the things that i have always found very attractive about uh, dugan's work is precisely his philosophical motivations that come through. Uh, when you read the material, they come through loud and clear. So I hope to make another video before too long on uh, Dugan as a philosopher, on Beaner's book, What is Political Philosophy? A lot of worthwhile reflections there also. Um, but I hope that you found this mediation of mine between Beaner and Dugan to be a helpful glimpse into what I at least think are the fundamental issues at play. This is Millerman Talks. I'm Michael Millerman. Thank you very much for your time. See you.